just get right down to business. The Joe Roberts Show. This, this is The Joe Roberts Show. The Joe Roberts Show. The Joe Roberts Show. On today's show, we have Darius Sitt, the co-founder at QCP Capital. QCP Capital is an innovative firm leading the charge in digital economy trading in Asia. Darius, thank you for joining us today. You know, why don't we start with an intro about yourself and a little bit about your background. Thank you, Joe. Good to be here. QCP Capital, I'm one of the co-founders. We started in 2017 with a two-man prop shop. I come from a traditional markets background and a hedge fund called Diamond Asia. And then after that, I was managing Asia FX book at BNP Paribas. So we started QCB Capital 2017. Now uh, across our, our related entities, we have about 80 people, mostly based out of Singapore, a couple in Australia, a couple in Ireland, but you know, the team's mostly out of Singapore. We do a couple of things. So QCB Capital itself, the trading franchise. We focus a lot on uh, crypto trading in, in Asia, particularly Southeast Asia. We quote crypto in Rupiah, Thai Baht, Ringgit, Peso. And we own, uh, we partner up and we own uh, uh, infrastructure, exchange infrastructure in, in, in Asia as well. So uh, Toko Crypto is one, we're one of the shareholders there, the biggest exchange in Indonesia. So Southeast Asian focus is one piece. Uh, another big piece for us is uh, we are market leaders in the crypto options market. We run a book in excess of uh, $2 billion there, trading across exchanges, OTC. And in recent times, very interesting, very exciting is DeFi options market. So that, that market has grown very big as well, and we are dominating there. We trade in excess of a billion dollars a month in DeFi options, so something to talk about. So uh, yeah, so QCV Capital, the trading franchise, Asia-focused uh, options and derivatives-focused. We also have an asset management company called Philip Street Partners. And we have a macro fund as well as a ventures fund. Both have been run privately and continue to be run privately for now. You know, we will be launching public funds soon. Our venture side has done particularly well. We've been uh, investing for the last couple of years, you know, early days uh, in infrastructure like Deribit, Toko Crypto. We invested in a lot of the layer ones as well. We were seed investors in Elgrand, Luna, Terra Luna, and AVEX. And in more recent times, I guess in the last ones, one year or so, We've been doing a lot of uh, DeFi investments early in a lot of DeFi projects. We were seed investors in XC Infinity as well, and uh, a couple others, DYDX and whatnot. I would say our focus is trading franchise, you know, uh, trading focus, and then ventures as well. So right now, I guess what, like, kind of what percent of the whole portfolio is on the uh, trading side? Well, the trading side, you know, we we run a large options book, um, so you know, we we are client facing as well. So, you know, that's a, that's in excess of 2 billion and the venture side is uh, about a billion dollars. All right. And can you go into on the option side, maybe like, do you guys participate on centralized exchanges or on decentralized exchanges? We are one of the uh, key shareholders of Deribit and we've been on there since early days. We were very active early in the ether options market. You know, we sort of uh, brought a lot of volume there as well. So Deribit, OTC, um, that's, that's, that forms a lot of the volume. And in DeFi, I think the phenomenon that we've seen recently has been the rise of the DeFi options vaults. DeFi options, because it's a non-linear product, DeFi has in the past one year, one and a half years or so, has lent itself very well to uh, linear products, right? So spot, you know, it's mostly been boring lending, over-collateralized boring lending, you know, spot perps, 
as well as AMMs, you know. So the problem with that, you know, it's uh, without intermediary in DeFi, it's very difficult to manage non-linear products, you know. So linear products, no problem. But the problem with that, as I mentioned, was uh, that in a lot of these protocols, the yield comes from token distribution, right? So it's almost circular in effect, right? You are printing tokens to give it as a reward. So the yield comes from the tokens rather and not, not really organic per se. What, what we see in these uh, DeFi options vaults is that because of the non-linearity, you actually bring a very high base yield, right? So the yield doesn't just come from tokens. It comes from the monetization of the volatility of the underlying asset. So to us, you know, I think that, that brings us into a new phase of DeFi where bulk of the yield doesn't come from tokens, but organically from the product itself. The difficulty with this is that, you know, without intermediary, it's very difficult for to manage liquidations for non-linear products. You know, it's not like spot where you can just liquidate, right? You know, if you liquidate options, you can square off the delta risk, but then you have the other Greeks to manage. Even with Deribit, it is a bit of a struggle. Intermediaries have traditionally been a very key part of, of, of this sort of trading product, but DeFi has had to take this market structure where the traditional finance guys have never touched before. The question of how do you manage non-linear liquidations when there is no intermediary? And this is very exciting to me because, you know, uh, this is something really new that is greenfield even for traditional finance guys. I think the DeFi options vaults brings a solution, a very elegant solution to it. Yeah, so I think that's very exciting for us. And we have been training a lot of that. And I think going forward, this is the way that DeFi options and structured products will be traded in DeFi. It will be through these options vaults. Now, I know in the US here, we have pretty limited access to different types of options, you know? So for me, for the investors that are listening, I think right now, like through um, Ledger X, you know, you can kind of access to Bitcoin and Ethereum. What are all the different pairings or tokens that you guys are currently trading and how do other people get access to that? Yeah, so that's, that's really interesting, right? Because uh, even though in the last few years, we've always tried to create new altcoin options markets, the C5 options market is dominated by Bitcoin and Ether. And all coins have never been able to scale there. But, you know, with this DeFi options vaults, we've actually been able to create very scalable altcoin markets. So, you know, last week we launched a $10 million Algorand vault. We've been trading uh, about $2 million Luna vault with Aave, AVEX. We even have, uh, you know, sort of spell, dollar spell that's coming into the fray. Very exciting, right? I think, you know, where CeFi has failed to create scalable altcoin options markets, DeFi might actually succeed. And the success there might then spread into back into CeFi, where with a cornerstone liquidity from, from the DeFi options markets, we can then create more all-kind options in OTC as well as on centralized exchanges. What is the protocol or, you know, where can people find out about those DeFi option vaults? You know, the, the, the main and first one was uh, Ribbon Finance. Okay. That was the first one that, that emerged and, you know, they came up with this elegant solution. The another one that has been coming up with a lot of the altcoin options is uh, Thetanuts.finance. So T-H-E-T-A-N-U-T-S, uh, Thetanuts. They have been pioneering the uh, cross-chain element to it, as well as a lot of the uh, altcoin options focus. So I think these two are worth looking at. And from a, uh, a user standpoint, like what are the benefits for people to trade options? I think most people that are listening are typical investors that buy spot kind of hold long-term and may not be fully understand what the benefits of options are. Can you break that down a little bit? Sure, of course. I mean, uh, you know, the options market is a, it's a financial derivative. You know, you, you can either, you know, monetize the volatility by getting a high yield by selling options. So the typical yield on a, 
options carry strategy can be anywhere from 50% to uh, to 150%, right? Uh, which is higher than the usual just staking. And uh, if you want to take leverage, you can always buy options. Of course, that's expensive because you have to pay the premiums. It's a good way to create leverage, right? Because, uh, you know, you pay the premium, you, you, you're able to level up your position without taking too much risk on the other side. So for example, if you're going to be long, you buy an option, you have additional uh, upside, but you know, your downside is limited. So that's one way to do it. And then in between, you're able to structure by selling some, buying some, you know, different spreads, spreads and, and various other types of structures where if you want a specific outcome from a trading strategy, options are a good way to structure that. How does one go about trying to price the options and get an understanding or education on that? Uh, well, I mean, options pricing, you know, it's a pretty standard black shows type of thing. Just that the difference in, is in that crypto, the volatility is extremely high. So just to give you some context, right? Exotic FX pair, like a dollar INR, Indian rupee, is about 4% implied volatility, whereas Bitcoin is about 90% and, and Ether is above 100%. I would say the pricing is not, not so much on the pricing, but more of taking uh, the market prices it quite efficiently. So, you know, you have exchanges like Deribit or even coming up, coming to us OTC, you'll be able to, to get some price discovery there. Who's going to be like the biggest, I guess, users or investors of options? You know, I'm kind of always trying to gauge how big that market is, even when it comes to some of the decentralized protocols, but also from a regulatory standpoint, I guess when institutions come in and trade, they also are held to more regulations where retail, maybe not so much, but it might be less trading volume. Well, I mean, you know, the easiest entry is this carry strategy, right? If you're long, if you have dollars and you don't mind being long Bitcoin, you can always sell puts, you know, if Bitcoin drops, you know, you're on the yield and if Bitcoin drops, you can exercise your long Bitcoin. If you're long Bitcoin already and, you know, you sell a call uh, at a level where you don't mind selling the Bitcoin net, you know, you earn a yield and if it gets exercised, you sell the Bitcoin. So... That's a simple uh, cover call, cover put strategy. You know, that, that's sort of the easy segue to it. Then, you know, for speculators or guys who want to hedge their positions, then you, you go long options, right? For the leverage as well as for the protection. I would say the typical retail investor looking for carry and, and yield, they do the cover call, cover put strategy. Then the more speculative investor or speculative trader is the one that buys options. Institutions come in the mix of both. You know, they are both either hedging or taking speculative positions. I mean, uh, just today, we actually had our biggest ever request for Bitcoin call options, right? Somebody was requesting 10,000 Bitcoin notional, which is, you know, this kind of size, I, I only really saw it when I was trading traditional finance, right? But now we are seeing that kind of size in crypto as well. And they're buying calls in this case, you know, I'm not sure whether they're hedging or whether it's a speculative position. It could be both. It could be either, right? They could be short Bitcoin and buying calls for protection, or they could be have a long view on Bitcoin and buying the calls. So, uh, uh, you know, a mix of both, depending on what the strategy is. But, you know, that's sort of the basic overlay of the, of, of the uh, landscape. So typically when they're coming and buying this calls, is that uh, more of a short term or is that like a more long duration a year out? No, well, I mean, this time, you know, I think the average crypto option, you know, is anywhere from a month to two months, given the volatility and the uh, shorter market cycles, you know, you don't see that many people buying uh, uh, long-term options also because of the very expensive premium. So I would say, uh, you know, the typical length is uh, two weeks to two months. I think that that tends to be the typical expiry or, or tenor of the option. Now, all these options, like you mentioned, the vaults and so forth, where people can participate in DeFi options. Do you think it's sustainable with kind of regulations and derivatives and laws maybe within the US or how do you kind of see this playing out from also an investment standpoint? 
No, I, I think it's extremely sustainable. The good thing about DeFi is that there is no particular jurisdiction to this, right? So whether you're an American investor or investor from any part of the world, uh, you're practically anonymous when it comes to a DeFi interaction. I mean, we, we've had conversations with regulators and they're all scratching their heads as to, you know, how do we regulate DeFi? You know, uh, who do we regulate? How do we do it? There is no geography. There is no border when it comes to DeFi. It's a bit of a funny story, right? You know, like earlier, like two months ago, you know, at, at Mainnet in New York, SEC was uh, serving the various DeFi founders and various protocol founders. And these guys are like, why are you serving me, right? I mean, what, what exactly are you, who, who exactly are you serving and where are you serving? You know, we're not domiciled in the US, you know. And then, you know, I think one of the guys actually sued, uh, countersued the SEC. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a tricky, it's a tricky situation, right? Uh, it's difficult to, to regulate DeFi, I think. The most that the regulators can do is probably uh, regulate the uh, gateways in the crypto. So, you know, the, the fiat to crypto, fiat, crypto to fiat kind of uh, portal, so to speak. Regulating DeFi itself, I think that's tricky. So, you know, I think it takes, it'll take a while before there comes to some kind of understanding there. And in the meantime, anybody who is already in crypto, these DeFi protocols are fully accessible to them. So, you know, uh, we've seen how quickly it scaled in the last couple of months. And I think we can see how quickly it will scale going forward as well. Do you think we'll see more like a type of whitelist or KYC type of wallet addresses in the future to kind of interact with these protocols or? Yeah, I mean, this permission DeFi market is something that we've been exploring with the Singapore regulator. So MES has been very, very proactive and very progressive in terms of their regulation. They are looking at doing a, a permission DeFi markets, but I think it will be two different segments, right? The unpermissioned or the permissionless <laughs> DeFi market will continue running and continue scaling on its own. Uh, there aren't much regulatory hurdles for that. And you think that's just going to be the the ultimate more peer-to-peer transactions? Exactly. So, uh, you know, I mean, like I mentioned, once you, your cash is converted and you're in crypto, you know, sort of the DeFi world is your oyster, right? You know, you can sort of uh, come in and out and, uh, you know, very hard to get tracked, you know, essentially it's just a wallet, right? So I do think it's scalable, answer your question. So, uh, you know, it's almost peer-to-peer, but, you know, peer-to-protocol. So that works quite well. Kind of what are some... Uh requirements when you guys are picking certain options certain is there a certain trading volume you know what are those things that in order to be in the portfolio we are in a position where we are the ones creating the market so you know we're the ones making prices on them so uh, internally when we decide what we can or what we will, we will price pretty much anything right anything that has a formalized market you know uh, decent enough trading volume you know legitimate settlement clear clarity on what the asset is uh, we were more than happy to price. So, so we're not uh, we're not like the buy side where we're choosing what to invest in. We are actually more of the uh, creator of the market. Pretty much anything goes, right? As long as I can charge a spread on it, I'm happy to make a price. What are you seeing as the benefits or the differences between the centralized exchanges and the decentralized? Yeah, so centralized exchanges, you know, uh, they're, they're great. I mean, I'm one of the key investors in Deribit as well. They have they own the Bitcoin Ether market on a uh, listed Bitcoin Ether market. And they function very well, right? You know, the exchange functions well. But of course, there are obstacles in terms of flexibility, launching new products, you know, making sure that the infrastructure is ready, that the order books are, are stable. So, you know, they are a bit slower in terms of launching new new products, which is why I guess it has taken a bit more time. Deribit is about to launch uh, Solana options, which is a great step, I think, before we see others. But go-to-market is a lot faster on the DeFi side because... You know, uh, there are less, less restrictions and, and less concerns 
about that. So uh, I, I would say speed is one important thing that you know the DeFi side has over the centralized markets. But of course, you know I think the centralized markets are still a lot more stable uh, in terms of infrastructure. You know uh, they they are set up to be a, an intermediary. It's easy to cross trade on them, and you know it solve it does solve quite a few problems when it comes to trading. For those that are obviously looking to invest in different projects out there in DeFi or around options, I guess, what are you seeing out there as some leaders currently? I mean, for us, the question that we are asking right now, you know, as we invest in this new wave of projects coming up is DeFi, the way it functioned, you know, it functioned, it started well and, you know, it was very scalable. The question for us is, what's the next wave of DeFi? What's that going to look like, right? Is it going to be the Olympus DAO type of a situation with the uh, you know, algorithmic stable coins and, and, and whatnot? Or is it going to be scaled up through financial products on DeFi and innovations of how we trade financial products on DeFi? So our thinking in terms of longevity and scalability is possibly the latter, where these are products that are familiar to traditional finance guys that are useful to crypto natives and have been traditionally scalable in traditional markets already. And, you know, with the right innovations, they are also scalable on DeFi. And we think that this is possibly where the next phase of growth for DeFi will be. Products where you have uh, proven scalable types of financial structures and instruments traded on DeFi. Is there any projects in particular that oh, yes. look like that? <laughs> so, I mean, the, the, a good one was Ribbon, Ribbon Finance. They were pioneers of this DeFi options vault. Uh, up and coming one is uh, Data Nuts, like I mentioned. There are a few on Solana as well. Friction, Tap Finance, Katana. I think these are all interesting ones to look at. You know, how do you guys, for your book or on, even on the venture side, how do you guys underwrite these positions, right? There's so many DeFi projects being launched, even from, say, from a retail investor side that it can kind of get overwhelming in determining maybe what positions to take or which ones to go into. How are you guys making that decision? How are you underwriting? We always take a thesis-driven approach to this. So we always have a very clear thesis on what, on what we think is the next wave or the next theme that, that we want to be long on. For us, a mainstay, the longest mainstay has been layer ones. I think, you know, uh, in line with the uh, Fed protocol thesis, layer ones are scalable protocols that you know, other projects build on. You know, layer ones are always a good investment. So... That thesis has always uh, led us to pick undervalued layer ones or so legged layer ones, you know, something that we, it's a constant mainstay, you know, and, and we do size our bets there according to the market potential as well. So layer ones sort of form a base layer for our fundamental thesis there. And then, you know, we have uh, thematic plays, right? So, you know, play to earn was a very big one for us. You know, we, we saw that as a new gateway, a new entry point for non-crypto folks to enter crypto. So play to earn was a big one for us. You know, uh, we, we invested in X Infinity and at the seed round as well. And we continue to look for other games that, that are scalable in the same way. Yeah. So right now, I think, you know, for us, the, the big theme is DeFi 2.0. What does DeFi look like? And therefore, you know, we are looking at some of these protocols that potentially could be scalable in the next wave of DeFi. So yeah, I think, you know, we, we, we do take a very specific stand to things, I think that helps us to narrow down who we speak to and, and who we, we focus on. Because like you said, there are million projects, right? You know, you could, you literally could spend every single minute of every single day talking to projects and you still won't finish. But yeah, I think that's the, that, that helps us to focus. We do have a, have a themes in mind. Is there any like top three uh, 
characteristics of a project that you look for or the team or something that quickly makes the cut to continue due diligence? No, of course, you know, uh, uh, for us, founder is important. Founding team is important. Community is important. And uh, of course, the uh, other supporters of the project are important. I think these are the three elements that we look out for and that we grill uh, uh, project teams on. If these meet the criteria, then we can sort of move to the next stage and talk about valuation, to economics and whatnot. And how important is communication with the team and just kind of that initial relationship? Oh, this is extremely important. I mean, in the end, you know, it is still a venture strategy, understanding who is leading the project and their track record and their ability to execute is extremely important as well. When you guys determine like these long uh, positions, does that mean six months, 12 months, 36 months, five years, or do you guys cut a portion at a certain time? Typically, you know, uh, we are long-term holders, right? And if the project has done very well, very often we might take off our initial investment off the table slowly. We also have this thesis that crypto as a whole is still very underowned, right? You know, I think I was at I was at a uh, financial markets conference you know, a couple of weeks ago, and and we asked we asked you know sort of poll the audience, and only about fifth or quarter own a Bitcoin, right? So. There is a lot of room. There is a lot of room there for ownership. So, you know, we think that, that in general, we are still in that phase where adoption is happening and people are slowly getting into the space. So we, we do tend to hold our positions for a long time. But with that said, there is a lot of leverage in the space, you know, so based on macro factors and, and what we see as you know, uh, overinflation of prices, overvaluations, we, we do take positions out. But by and large, you know, I think the projects that we invest in, uh, we are in for the long haul. I mean, how many positions or projects do you typically manage on the book at a time? Uh, a lot of them are just buy and hold, right? So I, I think we do have uh, probably over 100 positions at least. But, you know, small pieces here and there, you know, not so small ones, they've grown. You know, sort of buy, park it aside, you know, maybe take some off the table sometimes. But by and large, we don't trade that that often. We actively trade those that we make option markets on. That's where our active trading focus is, right? Less so on the uh, stuff that doesn't have an options market on them. And are you guys participating a lot within the uh, project's governance and kind of moving along and accelerating that project? No, oh, yeah, we are very active investors, right? So we, we are on constant calls with the teams, trying to problem solve for them, seeing where we can mix and match the various projects in our protocols. I mean, DeFi is a bit like Legos, right? You know, you, you, they build on top of each other and they build with each other, especially when you enter a cross-chain world where, you know, you no longer have these camps, where, you know, you have one ecosystem and just another ecosystem, you will have, you will have a cross ecosystem play. So uh, there is a lot of work to be done in terms of, you know, collaborations and helping them to mix and match, uh, advising on governance, you know, we're active in that as well. But yeah, that's a big part of, of the whole investment effort as well. I mean, some of these assets might have a thin trading volume. How do you guys kind of determine your initial position sizing? That's a great question, right? The truth is that, I mean, I was speaking to Paul Tudor Jones last week and he was a uh, you know, I was telling him, you know, this is the size of our portfolio. And he was like, stop, you know, that's the size if you can get out, right? You know, so uh, <laughs> the truth of it is that, you know, it's true, right? I mean, if you can get out, right? A lot of a lot of these projects, you know, very small circulating supply. And a lot of that is based on the small circulating supply. A lot of the pricing is based on the small circulating supply. You know, if you bring in the full supply, that might change. But the way we manage it is, I think one approach is trying to increase liquidity by making options markets on them. So, I mean, if you see this as a playbook from traditional finance, right? Illiquid stocks or illiquid 
instruments, you create derivatives markets on them. Naturally, you bring in leverage, you bring in more players, the liquidity thickens. We've seen this for Bitcoin, Ether, with derivatives markets, the options, the spot markets get much thicker as well. So I think one of our plays is, you know, in order to increase liquidity and also to hedge our own positions, actively creating an options market for them is a very effective tool. I just feel like uh, so many investors these days, smaller investors, right? They always seem like the best positions that outperform the most is always their smallest bet. Is there any better guidance in you know how someone should maybe determine a percentage of the book or what percentage of allocation when they're going into a new project or to step it up over time? I would like to say that I have a formula for this, but I don't. <laughs> Our investment sizes have been anywhere from 50K to... Uh, $10 million, right? Okay. I think, you know, general guide is, uh, you know, layer ones, we tend to be able to put more, you know, scale up to the end of it. Recent one for us was like Wu at Wu Trade. We did about $8 million ticket there. And we scaled up because, you know, that protocol lent itself to, to more volume, right? You know, uh, the project is an exchange and, and it's a lot more scalable in, in that sense. So we sized up on that basis. But a lot of the more experimental projects, we tend to take smaller clips. A lot of them, in the first place, they don't have that much allocation for you. They tend to be oversubscribed. Yeah. So uh, sometimes the sizing is not our choice. It's uh, the choice of the protocol. I mean, for example, I think we did 100K in uh, XC Infinity, right? Should have sized that up more. But, you know, back then, you know, we were like, you know, not, not even sure if we were going to make money on this. Turned out to be our best investment ever. But back then, you know, based on the, 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 <laughs> the outlook and, and, you know, given that it was a super early mover, you know, we, we sized it according to what we thought our risk appetite was on that on that basis. Yeah, and that's kind of what I was alluding to back that some of our best positions over the last couple of years has been the ones with the smallest bets and you kind of... <laughs> exactly, exactly, right. But I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, it's something hard to avoid, right? I guess there is no magic formula to this. You know, it's a mixture of what you get and what, what you perceive to be the risk at the time. Let's hit on the layer ones, as you mentioned, that's kind of where you can allocate the most amount of capital. And there's always a lot of questions around, you know, whether it's Ethereum, Solana, multi-chain, Algorand, all these different chains. How do you see this play out over the next three to five years? Is there a couple of key winners? Does everyone have a certain use case for maybe different sectors? What are you seeing currently? Right now, I mean, I would say the main differences between the different layer ones is, of course, there are differences in the tech. There are also key differences in the community. That's a very big one. But like I mentioned, I think, you know, as we move towards a cross-chain world, you're going to be able to move seamlessly between them, right? So it could be a case of everyone wins in that as long as you are scalable, you have scalable tech, you have a decent community, you are able to bridge between chains, right? There happens to be some osmosis, some kind of diffusion between the communities and everyone becomes in interchangeable. And in so doing, the overall pie could be bigger as well. So I think the way we approach it is, of course, we pay attention to the tech, you know, make sure that there's a good fundamental basis there. But more importantly as well, you know, make sure that there's a cross-chain element to it, you know, sort of bridging cross-chain element to it. And of, of course, a decent community. So I think these layer ones that, that are already, you know, have a decent sized community and good tech, I think they, they, will, they will be scalable going forward. And so you think that there's just going to be kind of an organic growth across all of them? Yeah. I mean, when you have new entrants in the crypto, the first thing they encounter is going to be the layer ones, right? So, you know, I think uh, as the gateway to TAPs and, other, and various protocols, I think, you know, layer ones are very scalable on that basis. 
as we're seeing some of the restraints of these layer ones from fees, you know, do you believe the next 12 month is all kind of about scaling solutions? And what do you think are some of the leaders that may come out of that? Yeah, that is a big issue, of course. I think, you know, it's going to be about scalability in terms of fees. Uh, it's going to be about cross-chain capability. AVEX is, is a standout for me in terms of on that basis. Near protocol as well, right, uh, in terms of scalability. Algorand, I think, is one that has great tech, but not as strong a community as the others, right? So these three, I think, are something that, I've, that I have on my radar. So let's roll into, I guess, managing cash positions, right? You know, uh, it's always another question. How much percent in cash do you adjust the book as market goes up and down? Yeah, that's a good question, right? I was just having this conversation with, with Paul last week. And I think after that conversation with him, I have been moving towards a bit more cash in the book. <laughs> he mentioned that he hasn't seen, seen such high inflation since the 70s. We discussed the valuations, not just in crypto, but in stock markets, right? You know, Tesla trading at 380 PE, Lululemon trading at 80 PE. And then you have every other, you know, random crypto project, some of them without a product even trading at a billion dollar FTV. <laughs> the word unicorn is no longer meaningful. You know, there are too many unicorns around. When this happens, I think, you know, there is possibility for it to continue, uh, you know, sort of this uh, virtuous cycle of, of value, but... I am in agreement with him that with a more tricky macro environment next year, as well as the valuations being sky high, I mean, like Shiba Inu worth more than Deutsche Bank, for example. I mean, it just starts to get a bit crazy. So, you know, he, he, he thinks it starts to parallel what we saw in the dot-com boom. And it makes sense to sort of overweight cash now as and where possible. And I think that's what we are doing as well. Well, let's hit on that, go into more details there, because obviously everyone's talking about the uh, markets and, you know, with the markets being down, people are questioning whether we're going into uh, called quote unquote bear cycle for a little bit, or we're just consolidating. What do you think is happening in the market? So uh, interesting one. I mean, we did put this up in our recent market update on Telegram. So the Saturday crash happened, of course, there was a low liquidity situation. But what was interesting to us is it seemed like a lot of the selling was coming, the persistent selling was coming more from the Chinese markets. The reason why we say this is, you know, if you see the funding rates, you know, the perps, they all went negative on the crash, but the Western more uh, global exchanges normalized very quickly. But I think until today, the uh, Chinese exchanges, OKX, uh, Huopi, Bybit, they are still trading at a negative funding rate, you know, so the, there is persistent selling there. And one of the triggers for, for that move down was a weakness in the Chinese stock market as well. There is this uh, perception that the Chinese government is getting increasingly hostile to the US due to geopolitical reasons. Uh, you know, TT uh, showed intention to, to unlist or delist from the New York Stock Exchange. There were some continued defaults on, on some of these property companies. So weakness in the Chinese stock market and then selling on the Chinese side. So it seemed to be a, a Chinese-led move in poor liquidity as well as, you know, some profit-taking, overall profit-taking a, a, a stance from the market because there's, uh, you know, everyone's worried about the Fed tapering next year. Plus you have the Omicron fears that are coming up. So, you know, sort of confluence of factors there. But with that said, the market has held up pretty well. And, uh, you know, with the persistent negative funding, the pattern that, that we do see is it tends to create a short squeeze because you have then the market has flipped 
and leverage on the downside. You have a spot move, you create liquidations on the top side. So we, we think there is a potential for the market to have one last squeeze up. But after that, as to how the macro environment will look, a uh, bit tricky. I think very, very tricky. But you know, uh, one thing that Paul did bring up was the turn of the calendar year after a year that everyone has done so well. You know, when it goes from 31st deck to 1st gen, you have a situation where your 100% profit is back to zero, right? So any drawdown from there is a loss. And psychologically, it does make sense to, to take some money off the table. That kind of profit taking could trigger a whole, uh, uh, the top of the bull market. And that's just funds uh, doing their high watermark. Exactly. Yeah. That psychological effect, you know, cannot be ignored. So I think we are very cautious going into next year. I mean, again, one interesting thing that Paul said was that he would never short crypto. So in the back of this is, you know, it is a very underowned and new asset class. So it could push way beyond your expectations in terms of uh, high valuations. But worth noting that uh, caution is uh, advisable at this point. You know, there are a confluence of factors that could see the market trade lower. Now, I know a lot of people you speak to, they're kind of hard to make a decision on where things are going in lieu of kind of the money printing across the globe. Right? Do you think that has a big influence or do you think that's kind of just being used and it's an excuse for prices to move up? I think that that's absolutely something that everyone should pay attention to, right? You know, more, more money has been printed in the last one, two years than has ever been before. And the cheap money is fueling inflation, right? And no one can deny that crypto prices have benefited from this cheap money. So the question then is what happens when this uh, cheap money tap stops? That is a legitimate concern, and I think for us, and I guess it should be a concern for everybody as well. But the other flip side of this is that in an environment where there's high inflation, crypto does promise to be a inflation hedge, you know, outside of the monetary system. So to me, it's about weighing weighing how much of this impact where crypto is a inflation hedging asset class versus the kind of leverage there is in crypto and how correlated it could be with when macro markets fail. I think the strategy that we've adopted is that we think there will be a higher volatility environment and also a, a lot of very uh, tail type moves, you know, so we've been buying tail options on both the put and the call side in case, you know, as expecting more of this kind of gappy moves that we've seen due to the, the environment that is sort of uncertain. As to what the direction is, you know, again, hard to predict. I tend to think that we, we see some softness at the beginning of the year and then we pick up again, but that's a personal view. I think the firm view that we have is, you know, there will be increasing volatility as the macro environment gets trickier. But long-term, up only. Long-term, <laughs> the question is how long, right? Yeah, five, 10 years, hopefully, right? And, and then the question also is how deep does the correction get, right? Yeah. <laughs> how much cash do you want to keep aside for that? So, uh, you know, two very important questions to con everyone should consider. Uh, no right answer. Uh, and whoever gets that right makes a lot of money. Correct. So we've seen over the years where you have a guy like Warren Buffett that is pay at a fair value and hold very long term. And, you know, the crypto market has been in this thing where it has seen these four year cycles and therefore people want to quickly try to gauge the top and bottom. This time, not sure if we're going to see something different, but at least it seems like maybe we're seeing different sectors go off at different times and kind of already, I think DeFi, it's been since the springtime that it hasn't really done very much to begin with. Do you think it's going to kind of mimic maybe like the stock market where there's sectors that are going to take off at different times for different periods? And unless there's a big correction on the whole market overall, we might see that more frequent. 
we are, I think we're already seeing that, right? We are already seeing certain sectors take off, certain sectors that promise more disruption. I mean, the uh, gaming play-to-earn space has been absolutely crazy. The metaverse uh, thing theme with, with Mark Zuckerberg making the announcement as well. You know, so we have been seeing these, these uh, sector-specific moves, correlations between coins uh, have gone down. But with that said, I think crypto as a whole, you know, is seen as a asset class block. The leverage in crypto is material as well. So if we do get a deleveraging cycle, I think the whole market gets affected. But, you know, uh, for hodlers, I think, you know, it, it makes sense to sort of pick and overweight your coins when you think there will be more disruptive value going forward. A notable thing in the last, in the crash, the recent crash was that Ether held up a lot better than Bitcoin. I think, you know, the institutions have been looking at Ether as a possible disruptive solution with, with the smart contracts and scalability, existing scalability of the protocol. So, you know, there was there was a good bit there. Just an example of, you know, the correlation starting to break up a bit. Will institutions have, uh, we'll call it, better diamond hands versus retail, maybe to the extent that the drawdowns might not be as substantial as we've seen in the past, or are they pretty similar? I think that's a fallacy because uh, institutions uh, also use leverage, right? So when they get stopped out, they get stopped out in a bigger way than, than, than the retail guys, right? So that definitely is a fallacy. It's not like we don't see gappy markets in traditional finance as well. Stocks, FX, right? You know, you, you do see a very, very big, Standard for uh, four standard deviation events happening, maybe not as often as crypto, but we do see that because institutional guys are also human, right? They take leverage, and in fact, they take leverage in a bigger way sometimes, and they could cause more systemic risk than the retail guys. So uh, I don't believe uh, in that institutions are diamond hands. In fact, it could be rather the opposite. <laughs> so in regard to uh, emotions, how much of the trading strategy is actually automated versus a person doing the controls? Uh, I mean, this this is probably more a function of my background, right? Uh, I, I come from a very discretionary macro background. So a lot of our trading is quite discretionary. We do automate certain segments of it. But, you know, the overall call, the overall strategy is also tends to have, there's some systematic element to it. But the execution and the and the calls and, you know, um, what direction we take in the short-term trading, I think that, that tends to be still very discretionary for us. And do you think that a lot of it also comes down to the lack of quantitative data that is available still? No, no. I, I think there is enough quantitative data and there are a lot of guys who have successfully executed quant strategies. I think it's more a function of uh, the DNA of the trader. I mean, different strategies work for different people. And I think we are more comfortable, you know, uh, managing risk on a discretionary basis. You know, we mentioned the metaverse and NFT cycles that we've seen this year. A lot of people are probably still skeptical about it or they can't visualize where that is going. What do you see as the outcome in the next three to five years and how are you looking at that from an investment standpoint? Yeah, I mean, the perspective that we take here, you know, is from evidence that we've seen right now, the, the take up of, of XC Infinity in Philippines and Indonesia. It's been huge. It's been incredible. It's been life-changing for these guys. You know, I mean, in, in Indonesia, for example, you know, I mean, the typical uh, low-income earner might earn $10, $20 a day. They play X Infinity, they can earn fifty to hundred dollars a day. I mean, that seems small, but but, but it, it is quite significant, right? Uh, we've seen the uptick on that in a very very big way. So there is that element where where gaming, in a related basis, NFTs in game, along with uh, the metaverse, in game metaverse, right? We are very confident that it it will be it will be huge from what we've seen, right? I think that continues to grow, and a lot of that comes out of Asia. Vietnam is one of the biggest places for this game development. 
Uh, and we are seeing a lot of excitement on the ground there. As to how exactly it would be, I mean, not my area of expertise. You know, I, I sort of am following the trend here. I don't completely understand and I don't play these games often myself. <laughs> but I've seen them, I've seen how much impact it's had on certain communities. And, and I think that's the reason why uh, we believe in it. Maybe what are some of the differences that you may notice, you know, between the US markets and the Asian markets of some things that may be on our side that we don't realize what's happening over there? Well, the Asian market is a very diverse one. You know, I think there's been a lot of excitement in the uh, wealth segment of the space. So the low income, you know, uh, uh, you know, students and, and, and a lot of the might be semi-crypto native or, or, you know, new entrants to the crypto space, they've been coming in because of the gaming side of things. And some to, to, a lot, to a large extent, as well as the, the DeFi side of things, right? You know, they're suddenly given uh, financial freedom and access to, to very high yielding products and high return products. The wealth segment in, in Asia has been revolutionized as well. You know, I think there's a lot of interest in crypto, particularly in the venture side of things. So, you know, uh, the, the returns have been too hard to ignore, right? So there is money pouring in on, from, from the wealth, private wealth, high net worth, family office segment. So we are seeing the landscape quickly change. The Asian banks have been very involved as well. I mean, a couple of months ago, I think it was a Sime Commercial Bank that bought an exchange. You know, I think this is the first bank, traditional bank, to buy a big stake in a crypto exchange. That's significant, right? I think you can tell the sort of forwardness of, of the Asian traditional segment that they are being very progressive in terms of how they are approaching crypto. Partly, I think also due to the clarity of regulation in the region. Singapore, Thailand, Indonesia have quite clear regulations on crypto and it allows them to maneuver the space a bit better, I would say. But some areas have different uh, restrictions or you keep hearing of different banning. You know, is that typically always just FUD or how, how do people kind of view that? You mean like uh, China and India? Yeah, yeah. You know, or just there's all kinds of, there's always noise, right? I think a lot of it is real. The ban in China on mining it's a real one. You know, we've seen all the, a lot of the miners move out. The ban on uh, crypto as a whole, that one may be not as significant as it looks, right? The crypto market is still going on there. People still trade on exchanges. People still trade peer-to-peer. -peer, less marketing. But yeah, the hostility has been real enough that a lot of these players have moved to more friendly jurisdictions like Singapore. It's not fun, but it's, real, it's immaterial, but might not be as severe as people think it is. All right. How do you guys see yourself expanding over the next three to five years as a QCP? So, I mean, we've, we've been very Asia focused, you know, we've been very options focused. I think that remains. The venture side has been a big focus for us. I think that that's something that we are increasingly focused on. The value that comes from there cannot be denied, you know, so I think we're growing and expanding the certain area, the, these areas that we have. One big area that I think that, you know, we want to explore is the US market as well. I mean, I, I was in Miami last week. So much going on there, right? Uh, it's an incredible place. I think, you know, it, it seems like the crypto capital of, of the US. And the fact is that most projects and protocols, I would say a majority of them originate from the US. So I would say both for the trading business as well as the ventures business, having a presence in the US, I think is something important for us, uh, something that we will look at strategically. But other than that, you know, I think we continue doing what we're doing. I think, you know, uh, there is a lot of opportunity in Asia, in options, as well as in ventures. Awesome. Uh, last question we always ask our guests is, what is the biggest thing you have implemented in your life that has increased your net worth? 
Oh, interesting question. <laughs> I think being open to new ideas, right? I mean, as a trader from traditional markets, there is this temptation to think that unless something fits into that framework of market structure or how you understand it, it's not workable. But that's something that has been proven wrong time and time again, right? There are innovations that could be different market structures. I mean, DeFi, for example, that might be completely greenfield. And if you force that into your traditional understanding of markets, you are bound to leave some money on the table. Being open to, you know, innovations that create new possibilities, I think that's very important. Maybe that's why there's so many young people in damn crypto, right? They bring the the new ideas for the <laughs> to the space, right? They're doing things that that uh, you know other guys would say is impossible, right? So I think uh, yeah, the Ruben guys, for example, I mean, two young young guys, you know, not traders, right? And they created this idea. I think that's brilliant. That's awesome. Well, I appreciate you coming out. I mean, if anybody would like to get a hold of you or via Twitter, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, well, I mean, uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, Telegram. We have a QCP broadcast channel that, that we have to do our market updates there. My Telegram handle is at Darius Sit. So easy one, you know, feel free to reach out. Well, Darius, appreciate coming on today. Thanks, Joel. Thank you so much. The Joe Roberts Show.